in tongues, and uh, we've seen a number of things about that that have uh, clarified some understanding for us. And just before we uh, go on to some new material, just like to very, very quickly review some of the things that we have uh, looked at thus far. What's the matter? Oh, nothing's the matter. Okay. <laughs> I thought somebody was trying to get my attention. Oops. Can't turn on the light unless it's plugged in. Amen. Okay. Could somebody give me uh, two? Uh, oh, can't read it unless it's in focus. Two uh, instances that we could use to tell us that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a separate experience from our original salvation experience. Two instances. Brother Louis? Uh, two I can think of are both in Acts. One is in chapter 19, a feeding believer in Paul came and asked them if they received the Holy Ghost since they believed, inferring that they've already been saved. And uh, I believe the other one was in Acts chapter 10 in the house of Cornelius when uh, Paul came down to preach to them. Okay, what about the uh, house of Cornelius? Here we have uh, Peter preaching, and while Peter is preaching, they begin to speak with other tongues. Uh, now, we don't see in there a clear... Uh, separation between their receiving Jesus into their hearts by faith and their beginning be beginning to speak with other tongues. Now, uh, that might tell us if uh, we were simply looking at that scripture that uh, that was one and the same experience. Now, if someone were to say that to us, what response could we give if if they said well look they just started speaking in other tongues and that's uh that's when they get saved and so uh what could we say to that response that might uh, help us to see that there was a difference that they received jesus in their hearts were born again and then received the baptism of the holy spirit Acts chapter 10, in Cornelius' household, they begin to speak with other tongues while Peter is preaching. Seemingly one and the same experience. Well, that's, that's a nice way to answer that. Uh, all other reports are, of how uh, uh, it comes about is, is that uh, uh, you have to believe before you receive uh, the Spirit. Okay. Another response to that? Well, that the... Uh, the salvation experience is you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of a lot of instances in the Bible, they had been saved before they got the baptism also, like maybe Paul on the Damascus Road. Okay, yeah, not not filled and then baptized, but definitely an experience with the Holy Spirit, but not yet filled 
or baptized. Okay, I don't want to take a great deal of time with her. The thing that I'm looking for is when Peter is describing this situation in Acts chapter 11, where he's telling the people uh, in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, what has happened. He says that these have received the gift of the Holy Ghost just like we did. He's, not, what he, he's stating something that they had the same experience the same way that we had it. There, the way they had it was that they were saved and then they were subsequently uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so, to Peter's understanding, this wasn't a uh, unique thing that was different. This was the exact same way. They were first saved, they were first born again, and then right on the heels of that, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Amen. How do we know that we do have an experience with the Holy Spirit uh, at the moment of salvation? How do we, how do we know that? Sister? Okay, you, you experience a miracle. You know that, that you're different. From the moment that you're saved, there begins a transformation of life. Okay, what, uh, good, what other? Okay, and, okay, so salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking, we're not saying that people who are, that have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit have not had an experience or do not have the Holy Spirit, but they do not have what? The baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the difference between those two? What's the difference between the experience when we are born again and the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What's the difference there? Um, ben. Well, uh, not quite. Good, close. The word baptism. Immersion or, or being literally filled with the Holy Spirit and the evidence of Okay, so we're talking about uh, the Spirit of God indwelling us at the moment that we receive Jesus by faith, but we're not yet filled or not yet baptized in the Holy Spirit, okay? We have an experience where the Holy Spirit uh, immerses us and fills us, uh, and at that moment, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that is that we do what, someone? Speak in other tongues, all right. And we saw in uh, every single occasion where evidence was given of the baptism in the Holy Spirit that they spoke with other tongues tongues all right and uh, that's that's good all right let's uh, we don't want to take too much time with that but let's uh, in first Corinthians 14 we first looked at the setup of the chapters uh, I'm sorry of the paragraphs we have uh, and again this didn't come out too clear for you but we placed before you a text of the Greek New Testament. There's no question about the validity of this text. And we have paragraph divisions that are placed at chapter 6, that are placed at chapter 20, 
I'm sorry, verse 20, verse 26, and those showed us that there were paragraph divisions that don't appear in every single Bible that you might have, but are unquestionably the proper division of those, uh, of that chapter. Now, does 1 Corinthians 14 forbid yours and my praising God together in tongues without interpretation? Okay, what are three instances from that chapter that, that are often misunderstood but tell us that Paul is not forbidding our congregational praise together in tongues? What are three instances that tell us from 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul is not forbidding congregational praise in other tongues? Dwayne? Okay. All right. In the in verses 14 through 17, we have a situation where Paul is describing praising in the spirit and bless uh, praying in the spirit or blessing in the spirit, which means to give thanks or to praise. And in the use of tongues in that fashion, when they are used for praise and when they are used for prayer in the assembly, what instructions does Paul give as it relates to that and the unbeliever? Okay, in that passage of Scripture that Paul does, does not say, if you praise God in tongues and, and pray in tongues in the assembly, that you need to have an interpretation. What he does say is when you're doing that, that you ought to pray in, you, in English or in your own language as well. So the one that is standing by you, that, is, uh, that stands in the room of the unlearned or the place of not understanding, that they might be able to say amen. So there we have right smack dab in the middle of 1 Corinthians 14, a use of tongues in the assembly where interpretation is not required. Now, for those who say whenever tongues are used, they must be interpreted, have to look. Smack dab in the middle of 1 Corinthians 14 is a case where that is not required. Amen? Okay. Uh, I believe verse number 2, where it says, uh, He uh, speaks not unto men, but unto God, that there's a time for that gift to be exercised towards God. Okay, good. Uh, let me... Uh, take our, our outline here. So we saw that verses 1 through 5 was speaking with tongues directed to God about principle and practice. In, in verses 6 through 19, we had speaking with tongues directed to men, part 1, the principle that, that you're not supposed to use the gift in addressing the assembly unless it is interpreted. We saw all the illustrations of that, that went for us uh, and uh, helped us to see that. We saw in uh, the third paragraph, verses 20 through 25, the problem and that, uh, that, was, uh, that was happening in the assembly. Now, it says in verse uh, 20, uh, 
23. If therefore the whole church be come together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? Now, we have an option to say that that if all speak in tongues could mean, A, if all speak with tongues at the exact same time, then people say that you're mad, or B, if all speak with tongues one after another without interpretation, then they'll say that you're mad. Now, the, the verse itself doesn't tell us which one of those understandings is right. But how do we find out which of those understandings is correct? Verse 24 says, but if you all prophesy, then they're going to be convicted, and they're going to realize their sin. But if we all stood together and prophesied at the same time, nobody, they would say we were mad. They wouldn't say they wouldn't be convicted. But if we did it one at a time, then they would. Okay. The context demands B as our interpretation. Because uh, the exact same construction is used in verse 24. It says, but if all prophesy. Now, it doesn't mean if all prophesy at the exact same time. That's ridiculous. That's, we know that. It means, and also lining up with verse 31, that it means if all prophesy one by one by one. And so, therefore, if the construction of grammar means that in verse 24, it must mean that in verse 23. It has to mean that. To say that means all at the exact same time is reading into the passage something that the context militates against or demands another interpretation. So Paul is not telling us that we can't praise God together at the same time in tongues. We've just seen that that's, that can happen in verses 14 through 17. But what he is saying is if you just get up one by one by one and speak in tongues to the assembly and it's never interpreted, then people are going to think that there's something strange going on here. Okay, and so therefore the, the, uh, the, the procedure, uh, speaking with tongues directed to men part three, the procedure when it must be two or at the most by three and that by course is in reference to what? Another hand. Mike. Speaking to the assembly, the exercise of the ministry gift of tongues to the assembly. So this is the critical understanding that we have to see is that there are tongues that are given to you when you and I when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, that those are used for prayer and praise, and those can be used in the assembly all together at the same time. doesn't need to be interpreted, just our worship and praise unto God. But then there is another use of tongues, which is a ministry gift given to individuals in the assembly that is to address the assembly and to be interpreted. And that, as we've seen, uh, it must be interpreted, and that's at two or the most by three. And, and we could get into also a, a, a look at that, but that exceeds our consideration this morning. Do we have any questions just at that point before we go on? Any questions there? All right. Amen. Now, as you've ever discussed with an individual, the and you've, you've said everything that we've just said. You've talked about tongues all throughout the Bible, and you have uh, uh, laid the whole thing out to him. I mean, it's an open and shut case. Now, what are the, some of the things that they will say to discount 
their need to be filled with the Holy Ghost and speak in other tongues. After you've laid out the whole thing. Sister? Okay, good. It isn't for everybody. It was just for the time of the apostles, the early church. It was just for the time of the apostles, for the early church. Excellent. Yeah, some say that's not the gift that I desire. I desire a greater gift. Okay, good, good. <laughs> for the immature. For the immature, yes. All right. As for tongues, they shall cease. Why don't we look at that right now? The declaration is, tongues, this is what they will say, tongues have ceased with the completion of the New Testament canon. You know, who knows what the New Testament canon is? The New Testament, okay? When all the letters that were written by Paul and John and Luke and everything, when they were all put together and we finally had the New Testament, then tongues and prophecy and all that stuff we didn't need anymore, okay? In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, let's look through that. Let's look at that. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. But then face to face, now I know in part. But then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity these three but the greatest of these is charity so the declaration is that prophecy tongues knowledge those things are going to cease when the perfect comes well what is the perfect in their understanding that is the coming of the new testament canon when the new testament is finally compiled that's the perfect and that's what paul is saying so we have to address that and see if that if that'll stand up to what this scripture says. First of all, we need to look at the context. What is 1 Corinthians 13 talking about? What is what is the whole chapter talking about? Okay, a love that will be in your character for eternity. What uh, it's uh, it's uh, a love. What about love? What what is that statement that it is making about love? Dwayne. Okay. Good. Okay, Wayne. Okay, love is the greatest. Love is the is the most important thing. Love is wonderful. Love is all of this we could say. The, it's talking about the preeminence of love. The preeminence of love. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. And so if in the context of 1 Corinthians 13, we're talking about the greatness of love, the glories of love, and all that that has to do with. And then Paul says, uh, when he's talking about charity never faileth, 
But where there be prophecies and all these, they shall pass away. And then when the perfect is come. Now, do you think that the statement that Paul is making is that love will endure past the fourth century? Is he saying, love is so wonderful that I'm sure it's going to endure another 300 years at least? That's hardly a powerful statement about love. That, what if, if the perfect means the kind of, when the New Testament is finally established, that all Paul has said is, is that love is so wonderful, love is so glorious, love is so great that it will last 300 years. I don't know if it'll go any further. I don't know if it'll last to the, to the 20th century, but it'll, it's going to last another 300 years at least. That's not what he's saying at all, is it? That doesn't make any sense to us whatsoever that love will endure beyond the fourth century. What Paul is saying is he's saying that love is going to endure forever. That there's something of love that is uh, powerful and preeminent and uh, that's seen there. Okay, secondly, in our context, that Paul is talking about personal experience. He's talking about something that's going to happen personally to him. He's saying, when I was, a, he said in verse 10, then when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And then he talks about himself. He says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, or see in a mirror, uh, not clearly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Now, if the perfect is coming, and Paul is describing when the perfect is coming, and the perfect is the New Testament canon, what problem do we have? If we're going to believe that, what problem do we arrive at? Okay, we'd all be perfect. Excellent. Okay, there wouldn't be any knowledge, and we would have to say that, that there is. Bruce? Paul was dead when the New Testament canon was established. Paul was dead before they even finished writing the New Testament. That uh, the Revelation wasn't written until 90 A.D. and Paul had been dead for 40 years or 30 years or something. And so if Paul's talking about that this is going to happen with the New Testament, then he can't be talking this is going to happen to me because he's going to die before that ever happens. Kathy, did you have... Okay. All right, good. So, he didn't live to see the New Testament completed. He didn't... Paul, can, it cannot mean that. It can't mean that. Okay. Thirdly, it's not talking about a change in dispensations primarily, but a change in people. It will relate to a change in dispensations, but it's primarily talking about a change in people. That's... That's the context, the literal context of what is taking place. Paul says the reason that these things are not going to be necessary is because there's going to be a transformation. People are going to be changed. And so uh, the need will vanish when the people are changed. That's what Paul is saying, is that when people are changed, they don't need that anymore. 
When they're, when they're changed, then they don't need to prophesy. They don't need to speak in tongues. They don't need to have uh, the gift of uh, supernatural word of knowledge. Somebody find me 1 John, uh, John 3, 2. Mike? See, it, what it, it's talking about a transformation of people. Not so much that some event primarily is going to happen and then we're not going to need that anymore, but it's, going to, it's something that will happen to people. Okay, do you have that? For we know that when he shall appear, then we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Okay? And so it's talking, that's the context. The context is talking about Paul's transformation. That he's going to die someday. He's going to be made perfect. He's going to be, see Jesus face to face. He's not going to have to talk in tongues anymore. He's not going to have to prophesy anymore. He's going to have a full experience of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our conclusion is, you keep talking in tongues until you die. You can stop talking in tongues when you die. Then you can just talk to Jesus and you won't need that supernatural language by the Holy Spirit because you'll know him, you'll see him face to face. Now, you and I as a church need to corporately keep speaking in tongues till the rapture. Until we're the whole church's change, we're taken up into heaven, then we won't have to talk in tongues anymore. But see, 1 Corinthians 14 is not saying that tongues, uh, you need to speak in tongues until the New Testament canon is finished, is it? It's saying you need to keep speaking in tongues until Jesus comes back. Hallelujah. Amen. And so that's what that means. And to say that's a New Testament canon, uh, that perfect means when the Bible is completed, when the New Testament is compiled, it does not meet the requirements of the context. It, it demands that we make another interpretation. Uh, I don't consider myself, you know, really a tremendous scholar or anything, but I've taken enough English in school to see that the, the grammatical context of this paragraph, you know, concludes that they are talking about the end times and not a dispensation in time. How can whole schools of doctors and, and uh, whole theological... Uh, Denominations well, because you get a prejudice that you have to keep, and so that prejudice clouds your eyes when you look. I did it for six years. It's, I can tell you all about it. You look at it and say, I see what that says, but <clears throat> that doesn't fit in with my doctrinal understanding. And I know that God wouldn't disagree with my doctrine, really. <laughs> and so he must mean <clears throat> this like the blacksmith. Much twistings and turnings done here. Amen. Okay, so that's what that demands. That's how we have to understand that. See, what you'll say, people say, well, when that which is perfect has come is a, uh, is a neuter pronoun rather than a uh, masculine pronoun, so it's not talking about specifically Jesus coming. It's not talking about the perfect meaning Jesus. Well, we're not demanding that the, the perfect is referring to simply his person. But when he comes and what he does, 
That is the perfect. When he comes and what he will do to you and I, when we reach that perfection or moment of time when Jesus raptures us up to be with him, that's what we're talking about. Now, in terms of, I understand that prophecy will be, uh, will be in existence during the tribulation, that, that the, you know, the people, will, those prophets will prophesy in Jerusalem, you know, like Moses and Elijah. I understand that, but we're talking about the church. And during the tribulation, the church won't be here. There'll be people who will, be able, will get saved, but the church is not going to be here during that time. And that will be a whole other understanding, and that far exceeds our time. Okay. So, we have uh, some other uh, problems that, uh, that this passage presents for us. Uh, some of them have, uh, not, it doesn't present for us, presents no problems for us, but for that understanding. What are some other things that, uh, that are kind of ludicrous about the interpretation, that interpretation that it's the New Testament uh, if this is, uh, if we look at this. Sister? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. That which we have seen with our eyes, that which our hands have handled concerning the word of life, talking about Jesus. Excellent. I need to remember that. <laughs> Thank you. Other things, Mike? Exactly. Nothing in the context even comes close to that. You know, that's totally grabbing that from your doctrinal baggage and forcing that into the verse. It has a, that's the thing. We have to ask ourselves, did the Corinthian church think that that's what Paul meant, the New Testament canon? Oh, yeah, that'll be when they finish the New Testament canon. Well, that's ludicrous. Obviously, they didn't think that at all. They hardly knew that before them in Corinthians and the books of Corinth the letters of Corinthians was the word of God that would be part of the New Testament canon that you and I would be reading 1900 years later. I, I don't think they quite they quite locked in with them. Other things. Praise the Lord. Kathy? Okay, a whole list uh, that, uh, like, uh, that a, when a person comes to maturity in Jesus, that he doesn't need that any longer, okay? All right, well, yeah, say if, if that was what they said, then I uh, would say that uh, uh, they're, what they're talking about is as many as of you as be perfect, all right? And they're talking about the mature, then we could say that when that which is perfect is come, when I become mature, then I don't need to speak in tongues anymore. Perhaps people could say, is that what you're saying? Oh, okay, and so then we have to say that first, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 
will probably, when he's writing this, probably exceeds our level of maturity and is still talking about a further experience that is going to come. He's, he surpassed our, and he's still speaking in tongues, all right? Paul says in Philippians that uh, uh, I don't consider myself that I have attained. And then he says, uh, uh, but as many as you as be perfect, be likewise minded. That what we understand about the Greek word teleos, that there is a maturity and uh, that comes to our lives that, that we experience but that our perfection, our, the, what Paul is describing, when we see face to face, when we know as we are known. See, that's the other problems with this passage. I don't know Jesus like he knows me. I don't, I've never seen him. I don't look at him face to face. And see, all of these things are talking about a, a perfection that is far more than just a, a perfection that we can experience in this uh, life. Would, would that answer it adequately? Yeah, yeah, it is. There, it, it, uh, well, I can't say that for sure, but the chances are that it probably is. And so it can be the same word, but it has those varieties of meaning that uh, there's a perfection that you and I come to in terms of maturity, but there, there's something that Jesus will do. See, there's a, only so much maturity uh, that you and I can come to as long as we're still dealing with our flesh, that inner nature. But there's going to be a time when that's going to be taken away. Good. Bruce? Okay. All right. Good. Excellent. In that particular reference, tongues is, is also tied to uh, to prophecies and knowledge, and so that if uh, if it meant maturity, uh, perfection meant maturity, then uh, when you became mature, then you no longer have any need for for prophecy or knowledge either. All right. Good. Good. Amen. See, here's the thing, you know, they translate, uh, you know, they want to make, or I always did, my, you know, uh, that prophecy, that, that really means preaching, right? But then you go to 1 Corinthians 13, then that makes problems for you. Then it's not preaching anymore, because we know that preaching didn't stop with the New Testament canon. Uh, you know, and so, you know, you're, they're, they're really in trouble. <laughs> my, great men of like recent centuries, John Wesley, Martin Luther, you know, the biggies, um, there's no evidence of them ever speaking. Well, I, I would disagree with their statement there because I think that there are references to those men experiencing that supernatural gift of tongues. And, uh, but we do understand that the, century, that the church uh, plotted along for many generations uh, without a great, the great deal of people experiencing and obeying this command, taking their doctrine and placing it upon the Word of God. And there were instances when all throughout time where God was moving in that fashion. But you and I are blessed to be part of that last day's move of God when, uh, when He's pouring out His Spirit in such a powerful way that is a signal to us that Jesus is coming back soon. Okay, uh, let's see, Bob? Everywhere I look, it's always an open door. 
Praise the Lord. Okay, good. Dave? Why is there a scriptural place that people refer to or think they have their minds when they say that speaking in tongues is of the devil? Okay, uh, no. But why don't we deal with that just for a minute. Let's turn to Luke chapter 11. Okay, first of all, if you're going to say that tongues are not for this generation, then the only verse that you can ever even close-wise come to is that 1 Corinthians 13 verse. Okay, there's, and we've found what that's referring to. And so there's no other place in all the Bible that says that tongues are supposed to cease dur during the ministry of the church. And so the only thing they have for that is 1 Corinthians 13, which is misinterpreted. And so therefore, they have no ground to stand on. Now, if they are going to find a verse that says tongues is of the devil, then they're in more trouble than they were on the first one. Because there's no reference at all to tongues being of the devil. Now, some of, this is ludicrous interpretation anyways, but they refer to the Tower of Babel. And they say, well, that's when everybody uh, spoke in tongues and that was God and he was dividing people. But see, again, that has nothing to do. It's totally two opposite different things anyways. But then it wasn't the devil either, was it? That was God. God did that. He did it at that time to judge them for their disobedience. But see, at this time, he's doing it, uh, and he is doing that. That's his decision, that he's going to cause men and women to speak with other tongues. And whenever they did that, that was by the Holy Spirit, that was to glorify God, and there's no reference whatsoever to people ever uh, that tongues are ever a demonic thing. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't counterfeits in the world, but when you're talking about biblical tongues and looking for a verse that will tell you that, then you are got blank pages. Yeah, well, what they say is that, uh, that it passed away when the New Testament canon came, and so now that's the devil, and, you know, so there's no reference at all. This is, this is the thing. There's no, that's totally taking your doctrine, saying, that I don't want to speak in tongues. And so doing that. Yeah. And also the, you know, uh, the uh, Mohammedan, they read their holy book every day and they pray every day. And, well, you know, that's of the devil. We better not read our book and pray. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, there's... I mean, just, there's counter, you know, there's counterfeits, yes. But see, that's the whole thrust of the devil is to foist on the church counterfeits and have the church run away from the counterfeit and leave the original and leave the valid. To run away from Jim Jones and to totally uh, brush aside anything as it relates to discipleship. Well, the devil just chuckles and laughs through the portals of hell when we do that. Because he's, he, to the extent that he gets the church to look at a counterfeit and say, well, we're not going to have discipleship. Or to look at, at, uh, at somebody, uh, you know, doing some other counterfeit thing that we do. And to get us to stop doing it. See, you and I need the courage 
to say, no, that's a counterfeit, but what we're doing is real and do it. Okay, uh, Rob? Okay, good. Let's look at that right now. Uh, Luke chapter 11, <laughs> verse 11 through 13. Well, why don't you start in 10, or 9. <laughs> um, and I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. It's interesting how often that's quoted, and yet in the context here, this is talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, if a son shall ask bread of any of you, that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Okay, and so here we have, uh, if I can just write this on here. We've got, here's the problem is, well, I don't want to pray for the Holy Ghost because I might... The devil might get in there, or it might be the devil, all right? So he says, if you ask for the Holy Spirit of your father, he'll give it to you. Now, it's not going to be a serpent, meaning the devil. It's not going to be a scorpion, meaning another, you know, a, a demon or something evil, you know, always a reference to the demonic, or it's not going to be a stone, that which is earthly, or just yourself. See, people say, well, I'm afraid I'll, it'll just be me. I'll just, I'll just talk in tongues and it'll just be me. But see, the Bible says if you ask your father, your father in heaven, then he will give you the Holy Spirit. He won't give you the devil. He won't let some demonic influence come into you. He won't just uh, leave you to just imitate that on your own, will he? Now, the real key to that is, is he your father? Okay? If you're not born again, if you're not saved, and you're asking for the Holy Spirit, you're asking for this gift, then I can't guarantee you in your rebellion towards the thing of being born again, in your refusal to be saved, but your desire to be religious, that you wouldn't have an influence come to you that wouldn't be God. But what I can guarantee you is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is your Father by faith, then if you're going to ask Him, then He's going to give it to you. And you don't have to worry about it being the devil. Amen. Sister? Yes. Uh-huh. Praise God. Here we have tongue. That is not a thing that appeals to our ego to do that to stand there and to speak in a language that we have not learned where we don't understand what we're saying. Paul says, when I speak in tongues, my, uh, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, people say, well, I'm not going to talk in tongues because I don't know what I'm saying. Well, Paul did it, and he didn't know what he was saying. Okay? 
And so our, our pride rebels against that. But see, the moment that we're baptized in the Holy Ghost and begin to speak with other tongues, there is such a transformation that comes in our lives, such a powerful change that begins to happen. Things begin to open up for us. Jesus, the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus to us. That's why he was given, and we'd begin to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ that we could not have outside of that experience. Sister? Oh. Yeah, it's, um, I don't, you know, I would say that in the, in, you know, I don't, I can't distinguish between different languages and different tongues, but all, what I know is that the, what I spoke when I first was filled with the Holy Ghost, I had three little syllables, you ever have, you know, you're and, you know, and here's, Here's someone next to you just going on and on and on and on without a re repeating one syllable, you know, and you, you know, and you're just, but praise God, I just, man, I just punched it. I just, but see, as I began to speak, God began to increase that language. I believe he would have given me the whole shot, perhaps when I first got filled, but it was like, shut up, mm -mm -mm. wow, that, uh, and, uh, but you see, so in terms of the difference, I, I don't think that was a... I speak in a different tongue necessarily than what I got when I'm saved, but it is... Yes. Yes, Ex exactly. Excellent. Good. Uh, sister in the back, and then... Yes, exactly. God is not a God of confusion. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now, that's open to interpretation, what decently and in order. A graveyard is decent and in order. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. They're all lined up and it's just wonderful, but there's no life there. I, I believe that what, when we speak in tongues, that we do it decently and in order. We're not having people getting up in the middle of Pastor Mitchell's sermon and and, and uh, we, we have a time where we worship and praise God in tongues that is done decently and that is done in order and that, that, is, uh, that is all part of our service. There is no uh, time where, where the, we're, the thing has lost control and, and uh, all kinds of strange things are happening. Just we, That is done decently in order. See, that's uh, what you think is what one person thinks is decent and order may not be what the other person thinks it is. And so we saw on the day of Pentecost, 120 people all speaking in tongues at the same time, so loud that a crowd of 3,000 people could hear it and remark about it. Uh, at more than 3,000. 3,000 got saved, but there were more than that. And so that was probably not what most people would say de is decent and orderly. And yet that was God from beginning to end. Amen. Okay, uh, Kathy and then Mike. Um, I was wondering if uh, John 14, 15, when he 
Yes. You know, how it says that, that the world doesn't know him and doesn't dwell in him, so they can't receive the spirit of truth. Praise the Lord. Excellent, excellent thought. Mike? I see that it progresses. Excellent. Good. Good. All right. Um, let's just very quickly. Uh, so we've talked about these. T- I only had one of these sheets left, so that's all kind of shoved in on the bottom there. But um, I mean, we have the gift of tongues it has some function. It's not just there so we can feel spiritual, so we can feel uh, like we're uh, better than people. It has certain uh, reasons for it being given to us. Uh, I need uh, these scriptures. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Randy, uh, 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 Brother Atkinson, uh, Ephesians 6, 18. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 16 and 17. Rod, Acts 2, 11. Uh, Jim, uh, 10, 46. Dennis, uh, and 1 Corinthians 14, 4, Mike. Okay, the tongues is not just uh, uh, something that has no fun, it's just something that we do just because we're, we go to a church that does that, that uh, tongues has a function in the life of the believer. And uh, the first is in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Excellent. We'll have to let these pass without much comment, but tongues help you and I to pray in the will of God, to that which is beyond our understanding, to intercede according to the will of God. Okay, uh, Ephesians 6.18. Okay, the context of Ephesians 6 is spiritual warfare, all right? We battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, okay? And so when we're praying in the Spirit, it's part of our spiritual warfare. When you're in the midst of spiritual warfare, you need to pray and you need to pray in tongues because that's part of your armor in spiritual warfare. Okay, we can't deal with uh, all of uh, the next one. 1 Corinthians 14, 16, and 17. Okay, so it's for blessing, for praise. And that word, give us thanks well, what does that mean? Beautifully. That's the Greek word for beautiful. Okay, and it's for edification, 1 Corinthians 14, 4. We can't read that right now. We have to change the service. The Lord bless you. You're dismissed.